AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for July 21st, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined by special guest, Mike Cotton. Welcome, Mike. Mike, you're the uh, Vice President for Research and Development at Digital Defense. Oh, uh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so welcome. Tell us a little about your company and, and what you do. Uh, yeah, we provide uh, managed vulnerability scanning and vulnerability management services to uh, companies, uh, Fortune 500, financial vertical, and uh, we also perform penetration tests, you know, mm -hmm. kind of in line with regulations and other sorts of things that are uh, necessary to uh, kind of fulfill uh, fill obligations, you know, due to right. security. So. Right. So how did you get into the security industry? I started a long time ago, and it's kind of relevant to AT&T, I actually started in kind of the data telecom mm -hmm. uh, networking space, working for a security division. And then when there was started to be a big shift, you know, the warm attack started hitting in mm -hmm. 2003, 2004, you know, it became clear that there was a really large problem. That's when I kind of elected to make a career shift and go down to a dedicated, you know, auditing firm. My big motivation was, um, I wanted to be in a position to look at a lot of different companies, you know, mm -hmm. to actually see not just work on one one network, but actually work with lots and lots of different companies. Yeah. Just get a broader view. It's more interesting. So. Yeah. I'm sure you get to see lots of a variety of things in the penetration testing world, right? Yeah, yeah. No, we really do. Yeah. We also work in vulnerability scanning, which is nice because we... You know, you kind of can give people an automated view. It's kind mm -hmm. of a high-level view of, you know, somebody was doing a penetration test. These are the sorts of things you might want to look out for. Mm -hmm. And then because we vertically integrate those penetration services in, clients have the opportunity to come to us and say, okay, well, let's, let's make that happen. I'm, I'm curious right. to see this actually play out. It, it's kind of a good mix of hypothetical and real world. Mm -hmm. so. Good. Well, I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk a little bit more about some of those topic areas mm -hmm. today. We have Matt Kaiser joining us today. Welcome back, Matt. How's it going, Brad? John Hogeboom. Here I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, so let's uh, let's talk first, Mike, about the uh, the old holes don't seem to go away, do they? No, no, they don't. <laughs> you know, it's something. Um, it, even when I first got into security, you know, I I remember I'd go and I'd, I'd talk to you know kind of our senior researchers, and mm -hmm. I'd say. Wow, you know, I, I just saw this thing hit the wire. You know, are you guys? I bet you're using that to like pop domains today or to get into places. And they're like, I, no. I mean, we're just using the same stuff we've been using the last two years. Yeah. You know, it's too. It's not that they don't incorporate new tools and tactics. They do. It's just that it's something where when you have old reliable vectors in your tool chain that just constantly work, you tend to go back to those again and again. And mm -hmm. so. Sometimes you know the, the hype cycle of new vulnerabilities sometimes outweighs people see all the all the noise in the news. They think, ah, this is what I need to focus on, but yeah. they leave these kind of less sexy flaws that have been there mm -hmm. for years alone. So yeah, that's a very good point. And it, 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 perhaps two things that we can uh, expand on just a bit. First of all, there's been a lot of buzz around the growth of mobile malware, mm -hmm. and. I don't think it's because of the lack of vulnerabilities. I think it's the lack of need 
to abandon the old vulnerabilities. Yeah, that's true, that's true. I mean, I think mobile malware is something where, I mean, those devices started, you know, they were locked down a lot better from the start. You know, one of the problems that Windows has consistently run into in corporate networks are, it's very, very hard to kind of make big changes after the fact. And mm -hmm. when we're working with clients, we constantly see, um, even when you set up a Windows domain, they put this big box in front of you. Mm -hmm. And they basically say, do you want everything to work or do you want to be secure? <laughs> you know? And uh, it's pretty easy to figure out what people choose. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but that actually plays into some of these kind of, uh, some of these things we'll talk about, so. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the other aspect of it is a penetration tester. Mm -hmm. It seems like if you go into an enterprise and show, you know what, this vulnerability from 2011 works. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it seems like this, the, the story might be even a little more compelling than if you say, you know, I just picked up this, this vulnerability that was discovered last week. Right, right. And, you know, a lot of these flaws are, uh, you know, they're, they're unpatched too. A lot of times the things that tend to get really trip people up, even with a good information security program, are things that are, they're like subtle configuration issues. You mm -hmm. know, sometimes they didn't have a CD associated with them. But, you know, if it gets you from point A to point B, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. So. Internally, we were just kind of, and this is just a sort of an exercise and in, uh, intellectual exercise we were working on. We were trying to create something along the lines of the Ten Commandments of Security. And one of my favorite ones going years back is that in security, the details matter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You only have to get one thing wrong. I guess they call that uh, the d defenders, the defenders uh, dilemma. I think, yeah, just one, yeah, one vector. You know, I meant to ask the the flaws that keep cropping up, the ones that have the longest lifetime. I guess, mm -hmm. is there something specific about those flaws? I mean, yes, that they work, but why are these the ones that haven't been patched? Is it that Microsoft hasn't patched them or that people are reluctant to apply the, apply the patches that exist? I mean, what is it? I mean, it, it depends. I mean, sometimes, you know, like with device issues, you run into situations where there's, there's no really good kind of patching mechanism mm -hmm. in place. You know, you, if you're talking about machines on your Windows network, a lot of times companies have gotten good at building a patch management program, pushing things out. Mm -hmm. A lot of times you'll see like with devices, um, you know, they'll let you, for instance, when all the baseboard flaws came out in the last two years and got a lot of focus, well, you know, depending on the network setup, those will let you go ahead and kind of take almost like a physical control of a Windows machine, turn it off, change the boot media, mount offline stores, you know, start to take things off the root partition now that mm -hmm. Windows is shut down. That's actually a device flaw, but it actually lets you get into privileged Windows machines. But it sits outside the patch management process. Right. So um, there's been a lot of high-profile flaws with baseboard protocols like IPMI and Cypher Zero and things like that. Basically, it lets you take flaws that are outside the normal, you know, kind of hype and Microsoft patch cycle, but go after Windows networks. The other sorts of flaws you see are, you know, kind of like I mentioned, flaws where Microsoft keeps saying you really should turn this off, but we're not going to do it for you because we might, mm -hmm. we might just break a bunch of stuff. We really don't want to do that. That's a tremendous burden. I mean, when you have every conceivable combination of software and hardware out there, it's really hard to know if we push this change out. You can kind of see them tiptoeing with mm -hmm. Windows 8 and Windows 10 saying, Let's let's try to make this non-default and see what happens. Right. But that's that tends tends to be what we see. So. Yeah. Are there some good checklists for you know if you're setting up a system to go through and make sure that you've got the 
most of the base is covered anyway. Of um, course, the details matter. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. No, it is. I mean, I mean, I think it's something where um, you've got to go ahead and focus on number one, making sure you're not running unnecessary services, mm -hmm. making sure um, as you go ahead and push out patches and things like that, you're cognizant of what, what are these protocols and things that seem to keep having issues over mm -hmm. and over again. Right. One thing we sometimes talk about with people, and this, this crops up over and over, is you know the need to really try to lock down username enumeration mm -hmm. and uh, easily guessable passwords on their domain. Right. Um, and un unfortunately, the way that most corporate networks are structured, you can easily have kind of these centralized points in the network where you know, you'll get a list of 5,000 usernames and mm you start going through, um, and it's gonna be either username, username, mm -hmm. or you know, username and some simple combination. And if you grind that, you'll get some. And you may not get a lot, but you don't need a lot to go ahead and actually take all those creds and then start looking where else in the network does right. this get me. Yeah, lateral yeah. So, yeah that lateral movement. So. so it seems like the uh, you know complex password enforcement is a is a critical aspect of it, certainly on a. It, a it is, but I mean you gotta. I mean we, our guys, you know, they guess username, username, and then they do okay. It's complex on, and then it's you know capital. P, mm -hmm. password one two three. You know it's, <laughs> and we get it. Your people don't have to just turn it on. They have to believe in it. Yeah, so. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you're 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 right about that. So we've talked about some vulnerabilities in general. Let's talk about a specific one, and uh, yeah, the patch sure. cycle. So John, if you could tell us a little bit about the uh, data cycle uh, patching that uh, right. Windows so there's an out of band out. security patch that Microsoft pushed out. Um, it's MS fifteen oh seven eight. It came out yesterday. And uh, so we were talking about like the old vulnerabilities tend to still work. This uh, particular vulnerability kind of came on the heels of the hacking team data oh, really? breach. They had a bunch of zero day exploits that were kind of in that cache of data that was leaked. Mm -hmm. uh, this is one of them. It's classified as critical. Uh, mm -hmm. It affects all versions of Windows, at least back to XP, including Windows 10, which is not released yet. It is a flaw in the Windows Adobe Type Manager, which is, that's not an Adobe necessarily vulnerability like we think of Flash, but the Adobe Type Manager um, is kind of a partnership between Microsoft and Adobe. It's a standard they came up with together. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it can trigger remote code execution. You know, if you go to a web page that tries to have open type fonts in it, they could leverage that remote code execution. The mm -hmm. troublesome thing about this one is it's relatively easy to exploit and it's mm -hmm. readily, it's kind of reliable too. Unlike some of these other ones where you might have to like kind of get really lucky or have a kind of a magic mm -hmm. uh, luck happenstance to make it happen, it's a little bit easier than usual mm. in order to exploit. As far as everyone else has said, I haven't really seen this being exploited in the wild yet. Probably should want to patch it yeah. sooner than later. So I'm curious, if this came out of the hacking team, it kind of suggests that, and it, certainly the vulnerability, if it applies all the way back to XP, it's been around for a while. You know, I've, I've heard a lot Possibly, of abuses yeah. of the term zero day. <laughs> Why hasn't somebody come up and said, like, the minus 360 day? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's been used for the last year or two years or three years, and, you know, nobody really noticed that it was being used, and here we are and finally discovered it. So, uh, sorry, victims, but finally there's a patch. Right. <laughs> and there are some workarounds. If you can't deploy the patch for some reason, there are some kind of manual. You yeah. can disable some of these features in Windows manually, but... Um, uh, I'd recommend to install the patch if you can yeah. uh, across your environment. Mike, I think you had mentioned a little bit earlier about how 
the font parsing was kind of in a ring zero thing. They're yeah, trying to work yeah, on it, fixing it, that. It was kind of surprising. I think years ago, and I think this was in the Longhorn era, I think Microsoft experimented with, you know, saying we take some of the stuff out of the kernel and move mm -hmm. it to, you know, manage code and ran into speed issues and other sorts of things like that, mm -hmm. put it back mm -hmm. into the kernel. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, now when you blow a buffer in the kernel, you're in much, much worse shape from a sandbox environment and other mm -hmm. sorts of protections mechanisms. And this was out of band, and it, Microsoft doesn't do a lot of truly out of band off of Patch Tuesday, maybe only, I don't know, two or three a year or something like that. So it, yeah. it means their guys, I mean, it's still, full details are still releasing, but their guys must think it's pretty serious. Yeah, know? And we right. yeah. just had Patch Tuesday, so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I think the availability of an exploit would oh, be yeah. uh, a pretty, <laughs> right, but even still, we've seen other cases where there's been availability of an exploit, but they yeah. haven't done a out-of-band patch for it. Yeah, so but you did point. I think they're did, a little bit more concerned about how yeah. easy this one is to leverage. Yeah, I, the reliability that you suggested yeah. as well. Yep, absolutely. All right, well, good point. The um, so <laughs> vulnerabilities and exposures. My, do you have some advice you can give us on you know what? Which, how should we be dealing with some of these these crazy things that are yeah, coming up? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, obviously it's a challenge. Anytime you're, you know, you have a large network to secure, you have so many users. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I think, you know, the, the thing that I talk to people about the most is, uh, I mean, number one, yeah, sweep your networks, you know, get mm -hmm. a handle on where you're at. Um, mm -hmm. You know, actually go ahead and actually gain that visibility Utilize your patch management system, you know, to go ahead and inform you. Also try to use, you know, tool chains that do explicit pro probing. The other thing I'd say, too, is as you're going around and managing these devices, try to have an aggressive program of really, you know, saying, do we need this and can we turn this off? Right. It's something we see, you know, constantly that uh, I've seen a lot of incidents, you know, where we've been working with clients and they're secure, 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 and then... I've got this thing in the corner that no one's thought about for like mm -hmm. 10 years. It's still on, turns out it's still on XP, and that becomes the domino that knocks down the right. entire thing. Right. You know, mm -hmm. people roll that up, they gain credentials, move ladder, move matter, and it, it goes all the way to the top. They focus on, you know, kind of these central servers. They put a lot of security protections in place. They really heavily fortify them, mm -hmm. thinking, you know, when the attack hits that server, you know, we're going to have all the IPS and everything else in place, but uh, the thing that they don't realize is when the attack hits that server, it's not an attack anymore. It's just somebody logging in with administrator credentials they right. already have. You yep. just look like the good guys at that point. You know, that's that's the thing that we work with people a lot, and uh, I mean, it's a challenge. I mean, the you know the inclination I think of most people, and uh, you know, I've run IT networks myself. I'm the same way. Is just to. Uh, Hey, everything's working. Just leave it alone. You know, if we turn it <laughs> off, maybe someone's going to complain, right? Yeah. So, uh, and so yep. I mean, that's a challenge. I think you're absolutely right. You know, the cleaning up the old things is probably one of the, perhaps least, considered, but perhaps one of the most important things to consider in getting, you know, tightening things up. It, even just in terms of backward compatibility. You know, if you have older systems, the uh, strength of credentials mm -hmm. isn't as strong. You, did, you might not have the same patch controls that yeah you know it's something too you know seen instances where um you know people will have kind of two-factor authentication you have rsa and things like that a lot of times with some of the tool chains if you can pop these old systems and somebody happens to log in through it 
you can go ahead and actually steal the second factor in a cached mm -hmm. fashion and then start mm -hmm. leveraging that through the network. So even if you're thinking, okay, well, I, I've got good end user protection, they can still bite you. Mm -hmm. But like I said, a tremendous sympathy for IT guys because like I said, sometimes you turn off the wrong system and uh, you know, that, that, that bites you too. <laughs> <laughs> when you're certainly... talking about vulnerability scanning, I think it's important for enterprises to not consider that everything is going to be a Windows machine. Mm -hmm. Make sure, and then if you actually study what you get back from these results, you'll probably find there's a lot of interesting equipment on your network that you didn't know about. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you know, from HVAC systems, things that control the doors, like all kinds of just elements that have been placed in your network, not by you or by your security team, and nobody, whoever put it there gave no consideration to the fact that you know security was a factor. I remember we ran into some stuff with like a gas pumping equipment, mm. or like pumping uh, gas into your trucks for vendors and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting what you might find if you actually kind of study your results of what you get back yep. in your vulnerability scans. Absolutely true. Matt. <laughs> There was an activity to take down Darkode. That's right. I think the, uh, you know, I'm still trying to get my head around this. What is the significance? So the significance is Darkode was a major underground criminal cybercrime forum. I mean, there are major players involved here. The, um, the original Mariposa botnet, you know, mm -hmm. remember that one? The, um, the creator of it was one of the original founding members of Darkode, according mm -hmm. to uh, the, the mm -hmm. article here on uh, Krebs on Security. The creator of the Crime Pack exploit kit was involved in the forum. Paunch, who was known as the creator of Black Hole Exploit Kit, was a member of the forum. Even more recently, uh, apparently Spec, or Specialist, is um, a major player in the forum, was also a member of Lizard Squad, apparently. So right. there's, there's a lot of stories going on in this one forum. Uh, so apparently a coordinated takedown for a number of law enforcement agencies across the world, uh, and a number of arrests, searches, and indictments, including 12 indictments in the United States. Wow. So this is kind of a big deal. I mean, this was yeah. sort of a hotbed of activity. And when I say hotbed, it's just sort of relative terms. There were apparently only about 250 to 300 members on the forum. But you know, if you get enough you know, concentrated talent in one place, it can be a major hotbed mm -hmm. of activity. This is generally good news. There's lots of stuff coming out of mm -hmm. this now that the, the place has been taken down. Krebs has actually posted some photos or screenshots from mm -hmm. the forum, so giving you sort of an inside view as to what was going on. Most people wouldn't have had that view because it was a password-protected forum with a, a vetting system set up where, you know, if you wanted to get in, you had to have someone vouch for you. Then you had to present yourself as, you know, I'm doing these, these criminal activities, please you know, review me and decide mm -hmm. if I'm a worthwhile member. So most, it takes a little bit of work to get inside. Apparently, so almost gang-like behavior. Exactly. There's a certain cost to entry that you have to be willing to put up with. Mm -hmm. uh, so far, it doesn't seem that they had to, you know, actively commit a crime to get in, but as long as they could, show, you know, they had a, a vouch and they had, you know, evidence of, of past crimes, they were mm -hmm. able to get in. Now, it seems that both law enforcement and Brian Krebs were able to infiltrate Dark Code at some point. Now, this is a story coming from both law enforcement and Brian Krebs, mm -hmm. but given that we have enough evidence here in these screenshots, it seems that this, this was the case, that there was significant law enforcement presence in there at one point, taking a look at things and that probably how they built their case for taking it down. Wow. So, so it, you know, I have to, I mean, to both, I, I think this is a positive thing in the sense that it does create a greater deterrence, maybe in the, even in the context of, you know, in a vetted community, how much confidence do you have that you're actually in a... Uh, that there isn't an insider? In, a, in an insider, right, yeah. absolutely, a, a mole of some sort. 
but uh, also sort of a shout out to Brian Krebs. I, you know, he, he always seems to have good, you know, that extra little bit of insight into events that are taking place. And so I read up on this one. It, it was it was interesting that yeah. the um, you know, it seemed like the site operators, they knew that somebody was onto them. You yeah, know, really? they knew that someone's leaking information out. It's almost like the. Uh, you know the joke. You know, is it is it paranoia if they're really out to get you? You know, and so uh, I uh, I think they I, I saw they devised some system with like reputation and user oh, yeah. ID that where was cool. you know they could see if somebody posted a screenshot, like a really subtle thing you wouldn't think about. Like, yeah. what's your reputation? Yeah, they, they, there's like a reputation score within the forum, and it appears right. next to each user's name, except based on who was viewing the page, that value would change. Mm -hmm. And by a mathematical formula, you could say, okay, well, I know the real reputation value is this, and the user ID that's logged in is this, so I can tell who's, who was logged in and who took the screenshot. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, it was kind of neat. You know, it was pretty pretty A little clever watermarking kind exactly. of scheme. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, I don't know how long that type of activity has been around, but <laughs> one of those things to be watching out for. So I, I guess the big question on everyone's mind right now is, is what's going to happen next? I mean, dark code is gone. That doesn't mm -hmm. mean the underground is gone by any means. I mean, right. some people yeah. are speculating they're going to move to some place on the, you know, maybe a Tor hidden service or some other um, dark website. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's going to continue on in one way or the other. But I think your your point that there's a major deterrent factor to show that you can't just act with impunity. You can't just have a situation where people are allowed to, you know, commit these crimes and not go unpunished. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, any uh, indications of what types of charges the folks have been? There, there's a, a list of charges on both the DOJ website and mm -hmm. the FBI website. They list out who was indicted and for what. Mm. And there's, a, there's some interesting characters in that list as well. Right, but it, I, I would think that participating in a forum would not be. At least a few people were in there for you know some sort of conspiracy to you know commit certain crimes. Okay. Spam, cyber crime, uh, bank fraud, those sorts of things. All right. Well, we've talked a little bit about vulnerabilities, you know, how to protect against those. But how do we, you know, what's a good way to deal with data breaches, Mike? Data breaches are tough, you know, because of the defender's dilemma. The idea that you know just one you know single weak point can go ahead mm -hmm. and collapse the whole pyramid. And right. unfortunately, the way that networks are structured, it really is that way. You know, people go from machine to machine and it's almost like after they get that foothold, they just get more and more power, more mm -hmm. credentials, more access, and then it, it spreads. And so, you know, initial entry point is really, really critical. You know, yeah. it really is something where, you know, once they're through the first couple stages, the odds they're gonna be able to dramatically spread laterally are astronomical. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing that, um, you know, I sometimes quote to people is, uh, you know, back in 2007, you know, Steve Jobs, you know, came out with this bold, you know, statement of, uh, which was that we are not going to use Flash anymore on these mobile devices, you know, it's security record has got problems, all mm -hmm. sorts of other things. Just the other day, you actually saw Firefox shut down Flash globally, mm -hmm. you know, like set a kill bit. Uh, the problem is then they turned it back on, you know, once the patches <laughs> came out. It's one of those things where I think enough of the web has moved away from it now. You know, you saw this big drive away from Java a couple mm -hmm. years ago when the exploits got so bad. It really is time, you know, I, I'd say to stop patching, patching Flash in your corporate security policy and actually start, just start turning it off everywhere. Mm -hmm. Just treat the installation of it as that security risk. You know, the other sorts of things are, you know, when people are coming at you uh, for that initial point of entry, 
you get these spam emails and they're these very crude attacks and people mm -hmm. get used to seeing them and thinking, you know, that's the kind of stuff I need to look out for. Right. But um, you know, a lot of times working with clients and seeing, you know, how they get impacted by some of these things, it's really, the, the clever ones are the ones where they, they think they know they, the person, you know, they're, they're used to interacting with people mm -hmm. from their healthcare provider or their audit firm. You know, the, the, those associations are probably public record. Mm -hmm. They're used to random people showing up and kind of doing interactions. And mm -hmm. so, you know, those loose trust relationships a company develops, a lot of times those are the sorts of things that actually convince you to go ahead and open that attachment or go to that website that you maybe shouldn't go to uh, in a creative attack, you know. Those are the sorts of things where, you know, even when you see people trained in information security, uh, really well-crafted spear phishing attacks, you know, can, can actually get people who are certain, very, very yeah, well-trained. They can be pretty tricky. You know, I, I, I tend to think of this in layers. First layer being basically the email scanning on the front end to try to identify mm -hmm. malicious behaviors associated with it. You mentioned spoofed source ad or spoofed addressing, mm -hmm. that sort mm -hmm. of thing. The right. the initial gateway should be able to, to to filter a lot of that activity out. It's going to miss some things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the one of the challenges, you know, a lot of times is when you're uh, when you're talking about. Um, you know, we got into the situation where people were filtering out spam, filtering out kind of bad messages, and they started mm -hmm. really uh, relying on mail transfer agent reputation and other sorts of things. And then they started getting to kind of domain DKIP validation and things that allow you to, uh, you know, kind of verify, is this person sending me the address, you know, the person who should be. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of times I've seen kind of advanced tactics where people are running out you know, uh, virtual servers yeah. on major web hosting providers. Yeah. And because, you know, major web hosting providers host hundreds of thousands of domains, they're kind of whitelisted for everything. So yeah. spoofed, spoofed mail going through those domains will show up a lot of times uh, under typical settings in your corporate inbox. And it, it can be anyone, you know, it can mm -hmm. be the CEO mailing you. And unfortunately, the technology that was built to combat that PGP, unfortunately, has kind of fallen out of use. And so you know, we, we started to see more and more of, you know, kind of email spoofing make its way back into hacker toolkits and being used in mm -hmm. uh, some pretty impressive uh, attacks. So. Right. So, and I guess to your point, second layer being the person looking at the email mm -hmm. and a, a, a crafty, a well-crafted email is going to be able to get by the uh, the scrutiny of an end user. Yeah. Uh, certainly your typical end user, and if not, perhaps even a, a well-educated one. It, we get so much email these days. How can you, you know, scrutinize every one of them, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I think it's something where it, it, it depends. Even things that are a little bit out of the ordinary, you have to red flag. The, um, mm -hmm. you know, we were talking earlier about, um, you know, the, the CHM, you know, exploits. You know, it's kind of mm -hmm. people used to send you an EXE in the mail. And then people stop clicking on that, so you put a word icon on it, you know, and then they stop clicking on it. So you threw in a zip file and you sent it in there so it didn't get filtered. And... Uh, you know, I, I've seen people use, you know, kind of these HTML help files, CHM, which they kind of looks like an HTML file. If you download it and double click it, it just runs code and it doesn't even pop a UAC warning. Uh, CryptoWall is using this now mm -hmm. in a big way that it wasn't before. And I think you mentioned uh, you'd seen APT variants. Yeah, I've I seen guess. some nation state actors use it a while mm -hmm. back. 
yeah. that are using it. But it still, I mean, even on fully patched machines, it still works the same way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so right. that, that's kind of, you know, kind of what's old is new again is uh, it's like, yeah, we can do this big complex thing. Let's just send them, an, you know, an executable <laughs> and see if it clicks on it, you know, so. Yeah. So obviously those two layers aren't enough. You need more layers in the infrastructure to be able to help prevent uh, the, basically the extension of these activities, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, layering on, you know, security technologies is good, but, uh, you know, end user training is also effective. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I always tell people don't, don't say don't give out your password, you know, like play somebody an audio clip of an advanced revert, you know, social engineer talking somebody out of their password. You know, it used to be something where, you know, I'd see people, you know, do this in challenges. They would never get people to do this because they've been so trained. But, you know, the more and more, you know, you actually see people get better and better at social engineering and, mm -hmm. you know, they just get very, very good at establishing trust and, saying, hey, can you just help me out? Like, I'm an IT guy, you know, your system's messing up, just, um, I mean, you don't have to give it to me, but, you know, I could, if you can help me out, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. Right, absolutely. You know, is it, since you mentioned the user training aspect, you know, we have a, an internal user training program, but the, the slogan around it is, you are the firewall. Mm -hmm. We have a little cartoon character, Murray, that is a part of each of those that helps to just make it a little more light you know, the, the, the training activities. I think there are four videos that are actually posted on the internet that are available for folks to take a look at that are intended that, you know, organizations can use it if, uh, if they want to do that. So it's, uh, I think, along the, the theme. But I think you had a very good example that is to, to actually hear an example of somebody social engineering a password, mm -hmm. I think would be a, a, a really good training opportunity for a lot of folks that haven't seen how crafty some of these people are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, kind of the big conferences, the, like I think DEF CON puts on a social engineering, you mm -hmm. know, kind of challenge every year. Yeah, I capture the flag and then they play you know, audio clips of it. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, these guys are really skilled, but I mean, just listening to those audio clips can really teach you a lot about, mm -hmm. you know, no one picks up the phone and says, hey, can you just give me your credentials? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's a lot more subtle than that, so. Yeah, well, I think that's a very good point that the, um, it, you know, having an appreciation for those subtleties is an important part of the training activity. So perhaps something we can take under consideration. So let's take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here. And uh, the first thing I want to just give a little bit of an update. I think uh, when we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had just uh, had learned of the use of RIP, that is uh, routing information protocol, being used in reflective denial service attacks. Of course, you know, we've been tracking a lot of activity or, you know, the on and off activity associated with using SNMP, that's port 161 UDP. RIP being port 520 UDP, both of which have been used in uh, reflective denial service attacks. This is just an update, as I said, and we are still seeing some. The red, the red spikes here are associated with uh, RIP activity. So it's actually larger in terms of the activity that we're seeing in those uh, denial service attacks. Not really, really significant. Uh, in fact, we'll put it in the context in a little bit here, but we are seeing attacks in the gigabit range, so something that uh, we'll want to keep an eye on. Look for the opportunity for deterrence there. And speaking of deterrence, what I'm showing here is actually uh, SSDP, that's port 1900 UDP, and you know we've been reporting that this has been a problematic port over the last uh, several months, used in reflective denial of service attacks as well, 
And so uh, one of the things that uh, we've been working on is uh, putting some blocks into the network. You know, SSDP is intended to be a LAN protocol. There really is not any purpose for routing it across the internet. Clearly, with these denial of service attacks taking place, the, uh, the damage that occurs with these, you know, these are devices that are actually inadvertently exposing SSDP to the internet, and itself could present a vulnerability to the device itself. So mm -hmm. the, uh, the consequence of blocking it is much less than the, um, the consequence of leaving it open. And so there's some blocking activities being put into place, and you can see the effects of that. Now, this is looking at the request side. So we're blocking the requests that would subsequently result in attack activity, but that does not block the activity of basically responses that are coming into the network, at least from the perspective of this analysis platform. So in any case, the, uh, there can be attack activity coming into the network from other sources, and that still shows up as taking place. That hasn't, uh, those blocks have not created a deterrent there, but I think from a customer's point of view, uh, they would be protected against the, those attack activities. Now, I think, and I'm only speculating a little bit here, but as a consequence of that blocking activity, there is a little bit of evidence of perhaps some increased scanning activity, perhaps trying to find devices that are willing to respond to SSDP. Again, speculative on my part, but uh, we will be uh, keeping an eye to see if there's a, uh, an increase in that reconnaissance activity. So if you put all these things together, inclusive with uh, DNS port 5319, which is uh, charge in, a lot of people like to call it, character generator, NTP, which is port 123 UDP, as well as packet fragmentation, uh, you can see there's a, still a, a large collection of reflective denial of service activity on the network. But the SNMP and the, uh, the RIP activity are really way down in the noise here. They're not even significant relative to the other activities taking place. So we still have some uh, activity to, uh, some opportunities for improvement in that area. Looking at the top 10 most probed ports at the top of the list here, we have port 23. You know, we were talking about this earlier for the most part. This is scanning activity looking for the internet of insecure devices, devices that haven't been well designed to be connected to the internet or exposing port 23 to the internet. This is one of these old holes, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, Telnet, yeah. Telnet's it, just not one of those things you want to use anymore. <laughs> right, right, yeah. No, I mean, it, it, you see that fairly commonly, unfortunately. Right. And it, you know, that, you know, devices continue to be just a big challenge for organizations to bring into their vulnerability yeah. management process. Everyone wants to have kind of a, the big green button you push every patch Tuesday, and mm -hmm. then, uh, but unfortunately, devices. It's a lot of these. It's just you just got to pound it out one device at a time. Yeah. You know, so. I, you know, my personal opinion is that a good portion of the device industry simply has not matured. As you know, it, you know, Microsoft went through their maturing process oh, and yeah. finally got to the, uh, the 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 point where patches are pretty much automatic. You don't have to really do much if you don't want to. Mm -hmm. And if you're an enterprise, you can gain some control of that. But the devices manufacturers often, they don't really have a patching process in the first place. And you, you'd actually mentioned it earlier in a different context, that is the systems devices that don't really have good patch processes around them yet. And so. Yeah, yeah, no, the, uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, it becomes a problem. You can use that to go ahead and kind of cross over and gain administration capabilities like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with baseboard management systems and things right. like that. A lot of times they, 
you know, they, they actually have capability of taking over Windows nodes because they sit yeah. at a very high privilege level. They're, they're effectively the uh, kind of the on-off switch, remote CD-ROM, things like mm -hmm. that. And so that's, that's kind of a really bad area where you kind of have the worst of both worlds. You both right. have, you know, if a device that doesn't have privilege access to anything gets breached, it's, it's bad, but it's not quite as bad as if a system that has access you know, kind of super user privileges of our mm -hmm. very, very highly secured system um, becomes breached, you know, yep. and those flaws are still very, very prevalent, you know, among the most prevalent flaws that we see. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, we saw a uh, password bypass vulnerability associated with uh, backboard access tools some time ago. Oh, yeah, that was, yeah. uh, and the yeah, effects yeah, that was, there was that. That's right, the Cypher Zero flaw, yeah, yeah. and that is, that flaw is still very, very prevalent. All so. Right. Moving on here, the second uh, second in line here, port 80 TCP, that jumped up six slots in terms of the amount of activity. I think we're going to take a look at that, at least in a, a little, perhaps a little different context a little bit later on here. Port 22 TCP, we're going to take a little closer look at that because that is in, uh, sort of on an interesting trend. Most of these others we've talked about before. We already talked about 1900 UDP and the, uh, its relationship to reflective denial service tax. We almost always see 1433 TCP in here. That's Microsoft SQL database. Yeah. Uh, looking for those weak passwords and uh, yeah, still, opportunities. Still, SA new password right. is still out there. It's so. just a database, right? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, 3389 remote desktop protocol in the list as well. Incidentally, 3840 other ports and protocols that are that uh, were being probed in this uh, this one day uh, measurement cycle here. So, a lot of uh, a lot of proofs ports being targeted these days. You know, a lot of them are even just uh, you know like really esoteric ports, but they are associated with backdoors or, or uh, other uh, very proprietary applications. Uh, this is not on the list. The probes on port 135 TCP, they, I thought it would be worth uh, showing to you. You know, we've been reporting on this for some time. We're showing 120 days of activity, and you can see where the uh, activity had been ramping up, and then it vanished. And so uh, there is uh, very little probing on port 135 TCP right now, but uh, as we've reported before, this had been generally associated with a number of sources that are actually hosted, appears to be hosted in the United States, but registered to China. And they appear to be very old Windows 2003 machines That's that right. would be vulnerable to that, I forget what the yep. exploit is against 135 TCP. Yeah, so it's not clear um, whether these were exploited machines that are being used as a part of a botnet activity or if they were... Yeah. Uh, and they all have uh, a very old internet information server running on there with a Chinese default web page that says, mm -hmm. hey, your server's been set up or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, very strange. <laughs> very strange, <laughs> yeah. Uh, next item here, probes on port 23 TCP. That, as we said, those uh, at the top of the list here, we're showing 60 days of data, and you can see here that just in the last day or so, uh, we've seen a relatively large spike in the number of probes that are taking place. If you look really closely, you can see sort of the decay pattern. So this is, uh, I, I suspect, a botnet that's basically sent out a command to do some scanning, most likely uh, devices, internet devices. And when I look through the list, you know, over the course of the day, in fact, we had uh, over uh, 80,000 sources that were doing the probing activity. Mo the most active sources were out of China. Now, I guess on a positive note, looking at sort of the uh, you know, the port you probably want to be using instead of Telnet. This is port 22 TCP, that's SSH. We're looking at the last 365 days of activity, and clearly since the beginning, about the beginning of May, we're seeing a 
pretty significant decline in the amount of probes on that port. I'm not sure if that's going to be a lasting trend, but certainly it is a, uh, a positive one from our point of view. Looking at the most sources doing the probing, at the top of the list, port 23, we've already talked about that in terms of the number of probes. We'll look at it again in terms of the number of sources that are doing that probing. And similarly for port 443 and 80 TCP, the next two in the list, we'll take a look at those. And uh, John, I think you'll have a little description for us. Most of these others uh, we've talked about before. Port 23 TCP, as, we, as I'd mentioned earlier, we saw the spike in the probing activity, and we also see it in the number of sources that are doing that probing. This is measuring up around 80,000 sources that we see doing that probing activity. Again, invariably, the internet of insecure things. Normally, uh, this is uh, password guessing activities, and it's sometimes not even guessing, it's just using the default passwords for these devices to get into it. We are seeing sort of a climbing in trend. This is not the peak of what we've seen over the last, say, year ago, but we certainly, uh, this is uh, certainly climbing and perhaps we'll continue to do that. And then looking at the activity on port 80 TCP and 443 TCP, this is a little bit of a strange situation where we saw some relatively unusual spikes in the number of sources probing on port 80 and 443. Now, it showed up here, but John, I think when you were looking at it, you saw that they were probing a number of other ports as well. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, and it's kind of, it's very strange because I think our algorithms got a little confused. Yeah, it's a um, possibility. So what we saw in this, this flow activity was predominantly ACK resets, which would be a response. Right. So our, our scan volumetric algorithms were looking at ACK resets, thinking that was a scan. But in mm -hmm. reality, there were SINs sent as well. Mm -hmm. So appears that what someone is doing is sending spoof source IP, source port of 443, some random destination IP, destination ports of like 80, 8080, 5900, you know, all these ones that you would scan for normally mm -hmm. to see if you could. Um, but why they would spoof the source IP, I don't know, because you're not going to get the answer back. Right. <laughs> um, but there was also one IP that was maybe spoofed, maybe not, that was doing the same type of activity um, with the same source port of 443 that was doing a lot more of this activity. Mm -hmm. So he was getting a lot of backscatter of mm -hmm. all this activity as well, uh, which I don't know if that was some sort of denial of service attempt, yeah. like a kind of faux reflective denial of service, because all he's going to get back are ACK resets from other right. people, um, but I'm not quite sure. Yeah, so but we may be seeing a couple like. of different things going on here, perhaps some scanning activity combined with some denial of service activity. And, um, it's a little difficult to say. The, the, the variety of addresses could actually be explained by a botnet doing this scanning activity. Not really clear. So yeah, some more investigation perhaps, but just keep an eye out for this. This is uh, obviously, you know, you, you aren't necessarily in a position to be able to shut down port 80 and 443, but at least understanding the activity has taken place there and being aware of it will be your one step better from a protection point of view. Well, that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find ATT Threat Track on the ATT Tech channel, on YouTube, as well as on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. And Mike, do you have a Twitter handle? Uh, yeah, it's at incotton256. All right, so. good. So uh, if you'd like to get in, uh, provide some feedback to Mike or uh, to uh, uh, give a shout out for the program. We'd appreciate that as well. Thank you, Mike, for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you here. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Matt. John, I'm Brian Rexroy. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe.
The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.